0: We all have something in common, regardless of gender, ethnicity, age, sexual preference, or occupation. We're human, human beings. And our character, it's defined by characteristics, our attributes. Are we kind or mean, generous or greedy, tolerant or intolerant, nomadic or territorial, giver, taker, positive, negative, courageous, or cowardly? And do these attributes change because of our circumstance, the time of the day? Or are we just wired a certain way? We're all human, but we're all different. It's what binds us, and it's what divides us. And right now, from my perspective, I think forces beyond our control are working to divide us, economically, politically, and culturally. Are you an anti-vaxxer? Are you a racist? Are you a liberal? Are you part of the one percenters? Are you Westerner or Easterner, left or right? Are you for or against? These divides have always been there, but in the past, my belief is that most of us crowded in the middle, We had differences, but we worked hard to reconcile them. And some blame the difference today is on social media, that you're fed content that confirms your biases. You're surrounded by like-minded people. You live for their validation. Others point to mass media that to survive, they've had to start chasing eyeballs. I also question the tactics of today's politicians that divide to conquer, to win ballots, use fear to bring about civil obedience. My question to you is, Can we reconcile these differences? And do we care? Let's take Canada. This week we're celebrating its birthday. Be easy for me to focus on all that's great about our country. I'm a passionate Canadian. I feel so blessed and grateful to be born here. And I know I'm not alone. When I travel around the world and people discover my nationality, I can hear the smile in their voice when they say, oh, you're Canadian. But only focusing on one perspective isn't a bridge. It's a wall for me to hide behind.
1: listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: I put out a post recently challenging one of our political leaders who painted Canada as a racist country. In context, I described where I lived in East End of Toronto on the beach, and every day I go for a walk with my wife and the dogs on the boardwalk, and I hear different languages. I smell different food cooking. I see same-sex couples cuddling on benches, people playing in the sand in a bathing suit or in their religious garb, and no one cares. Many agree with me, but others challenge me because they said I didn't have perspective. And the more I think about it, the more I think they're right. I've been bullied as a kid. I, I, I suffered from an imposter syndrome when I first moved to Toronto. I didn't have that old boys network. But I was never overlooked or overhauled because of my ethnicity. I never had to smash through a glass ceiling or deal with the inequalities of my pay because of my gender or have to work three jobs while living in constant fear of losing my shelter. I never got called out because I wasn't heterosexual. So I don't have their perspective. And I was also rocked like most of you for the past couple of weeks as we learn about the horrors of what happened in residential schools
1: it's here where the remains of indigenous children some as young as three were found it was devastating it was
0: it was actually quite mind-boggling and that that many children had passed it's uh, shocking it's horrific nobody told me I, you know good night or nobody told me I loved you and nobody uh, hugged me in 11 years and that's the most important years of your life and when I started to personalize it versus ignore it when I imagined it was my child that'd be kidnapped thrown in a school designed to erase their identity, to steal their identity. And with it comes horrific abuse and death at the hands of the church and crown and estate. I wasn't just embarrassed, it changed my perspective on Canada. Now today I don't want to talk about what happens. I want to let the people who have that perspective, who have direct access to that history to do that. But what I want to talk to you about is reconciliation. I believe in my heart that the only way forward as a country, as a society, and as individuals is to reconcile our differences. I'm not asking anyone to ignore our past. I'm not dismissing anyone's pain. And I'm certainly not making excuses because of the flaws of humanity. But I do know that when I reconcile my differences with others, I breathe easier. I feel I'm a better person for it. And I think the same holds true for Canada. We have an opportunity to reconcile across so many divides to build a better Canada. My guest today believes that we can reconcile our differences. And I believe after researching her, she is a force of human nature. Her name is Sandy Boucher. She's a speaker, activist, author, and storyteller. She's called upon to create safe spaces for indigenous empowerment and Canadian reconciliation. And her approach is one learning from our past to find a path forward to reconcile our differences. And what we can learn from Sandy today is if we open our minds and hearts, it'll help us bridge the divide within all of our lives. Sandy Boucher, welcome to Chatter That Matters.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Sandy, introduce yourself the way you do in your videos with your I love the fact you use both languages and talk who you are.
2: <laughs> So what I am saying there in Jibway is my name is Red Thunderbolt Woman, which is my spirit name. I'm said to represent that split second in time when the thunder sounds exactly as the lightning strikes. So I tell everyone I'm not really good at being subtle. I'm a proud member of Sane River First Nation in Treaty 3 Territory in Northern Ontario, and I'm a member of the Loon Clan. It is said that the Loon's are the speakers of our community. So by living and doing my career, I am living up to my teachings. Thank you for having me.
0: Sandy, you're an author, and the, on the back of your first book is a piece of prose that you wrote that absolutely moved me. I wonder if you could read it to us now.
2: I believe that we have everything we need inside us. And as the elders say, once we learn to trust our instincts, nothing can stop us. We must take the time to slow our minds, to learn from the lessons around us, to hear our instincts as they guide us to achieving all we have ever hoped for. Happiness is just a moment away. I am a strong Ojibwe woman who is living proof of the strength and survival power of the human spirit. I lost the man that meant the world to me, my father, at the tender age of 17. At 20, I lost my newborn daughter to SIDS. I lost one of my best friends to a brain aneurysm, and then I said goodbye to my mentor and guide, my mother. I've spent more nights than I care to count in a shelter for abused women, and I know what it's like to close your eyes and honestly believe you will never see your children again. I know poverty, the type of poverty that has you boiling water to bathe and eating once every three days because there is simply no other option. I have sold furniture for food, and I have debated whether life was truly worth continuing. But I also know the beauty of a child's love and the serenity that can be found in knowing with all your heart that you're going to be just fine. I know the strength that can be found in counting your blessings and in forgiving yourself. I know the strength of my belief system and the healing power of laughter. And I know how simply amazing and wonderful this life can be right now, not in some distant future, for I live it every single day.
0: Sandy, those are such powerful words. They compress a story that few would want to live. But it's also fair to say by having that pain is probably what has set you up for a future where you're trying to erase pain in others, isn't it?
2: Well, I think it's really easy to appreciate a great day when you've had so many bad ones, which is why I was saying I live this life every single day Uh, to sound very dramatic here. No one's trying to kill me. No one's trying to hurt me today. I may have your everyday challenges, but it's still a beautiful journey. And I'm living proof that your past doesn't have to be your future, that you can learn from it and create something so much better for yourself and those you love.
0: Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. So these children today They've shown themselves to the world. And they've shown themselves for a very specific purpose. It's to heal. Today I'm chatting with Sandy Boucher. She's an author, speaker, activist, and storyteller. She's called upon to create safe spaces for Indigenous empowerment and Canadian reconciliation. And I'm going to call on her today to talk about how we can reconcile all the different differences in our lives being individual, society, and as a country. Sandy, a big part of your practice is to learn from your past, so I'd love to go back into your history. Where were you born?
2: I was born in a tiny northern Ontario town of 400 people by the name of Hudson, one industry sawmill town.
0: In your opening prose, you talked about, you know, the who meant the world to you, my father, your mother being a mentor and guide. What are the most important lessons you learned from each
2: Well, you know what? Honestly, I think, as you mentioned, being raised in that house is exactly what set me up for the career I have now. My mom was a beautiful Anishinaabekwe, an Ojibwe woman from Kuchiching First Nation. My dad was a Frenchman from Saint-Jérôme, Quebec. But in the house I grew up in, there was no racism. My dad didn't want my mom to change or become more like him. He loved the way that she heard the birds and looked at the world, and she loved the way he was. I saw that reconciliation is possible. I saw that two entirely different cultures can get along beautifully and it doesn't require either to change who they are. It does require that you accept the other is different and you allow space for that. It wasn't until I left home that things changed. My mom passed on so many amazing Anishinaabe teachings to me, our worldview, our way of looking at the world. And my dad taught me strength and perseverance. He promised me this journey was not gonna be easy, that there were going to be people that were gonna try to stop me, but that if I truly wanted it, I was strong enough to do it.
0: In one of your talks, you describe how losing your dad someone who valued you, how when he left, it made you vulnerable?
2: Oh, 110%. So I often refer to my dad as my first projector. So if you think of the projectors we use in seminar or in school that shoot the image up onto the screen, when I was a young woman, anyone who knew me back then probably would have told you I was a confident woman, but I absolutely wasn't. I didn't have self-esteem, I had dad esteem. My dad thought I could walk on water, so I believed him, I can walk on water. He thought I should be prime minister one day. I was like, okay, maybe I can do that. And then the light went out. Suddenly I was left one of two billion people on the planet. No one was telling me I could do it anymore. I hadn't yet learned that I could be that voice. So unfortunately, like so many other women, I set out on a very dangerous path in that I went looking for another projector. I went looking for someone who would tell me I was worth it, that I had value. And as you can well imagine, when you put your value completely in the hands of someone else, that is an incredibly dangerous place to be.
0: And then you lose your mom very suddenly. She doesn't survive surgery. And you wrote a book called The Honorary Indian about why she mattered so much to you. You talked a little bit about the lesson she gave you. And I I got goosebumps when you described how your dad loved to watch her, the way she listened to birds and sang with birds. So tell me a little bit about what the reader would get reading this wonderful tribute to your mom.
2: That book was written primarily out of fear, When I lost my mom and I got through that horrific grieving process, I suddenly became very afraid that I would forget her teachings, that I would forget her stories. And I knew that they could help so many people and that these people no longer had the chance to meet my mom. And I felt selfish carrying the teachings and just keeping them to myself so I sat down and wrote a daily motivational guide there's a little story for every single day and the idea is that you read the story and take from it what you need how does it apply to your life
0: one of the things that moved me is when you talked about how your mom wasn't educated in the traditional sense but she lived within a room full of books tell us a little bit more about that
2: So through a series of really unfortunate events, my mother actually didn't go to school until she was 14. And she was sent to kindergarten. Now, just imagine that for a second. When I asked my mom about her experience, there was only two things she would share and the pain would become obvious on her face as she shared it. The first one was the fact that she was taller than her teacher. The second that she really didn't fit into those little desks. So my mom had no choice. She had to go to school at least until her 18th birthday, which meant my mom had a grade four education. But nothing was more important to my mom than being a good mom. As she would say, it was her job to give us, her children, everything we would need to go on after she was gone. So I can remember I was tiny and my mom, I'm showing my age here, she used to belong to book clubs like Columbia House and Double Day, all those things that we we remember from childhood. And every month the books would come in and we knew the rule. The book did not go on the shelf until my mom read it. They sat next to her chair with her dictionary, and she read through every book. And they were textbooks and history books and people's stories, all different types. And it actually wasn't until after she passed away That I put the two together. That my mom only had a grade four education, but she had read all those books. And if you had spoke to her, she was incredibly articulate. You would never have guessed her lack of education.
0: If you could have one more moment with your mom right now, what would you say, knowing what you know now and how much of her is inside you?
2: I would just say thank you for the authenticity, for the strength, for the example. I can have... The hardest day imaginable. And it's nothing compared to what I watched my mom survive. And to have that example reminds me to keep going.
0: You talk about how your low self-esteem puts you in the company of some real winners. I mean, I put that in quotation because they're actually really real losers. What advice can you bring to other people who are struggling with who they are and why they matter to make sure they have the strength to focus on their health and their mental and physical well-being versus maybe falling down a path where they just surrender to somebody that will bully them or abuse them?
2: Well, I'm going to rest heavy on a teaching here. So my mom would be the first to say your value was gifted to you on the day you were born. And no one can take that away from you unless you give them the power to. So if you are struggling with low self-esteem, know without a doubt someone took it from you whether it was someone who criticized you as a child or judged you or didn't give you support and encouragement, they took that from you, but you can give it back to you. Nothing was more important to me than realizing I've always had my value. The fact that someone else can't see it doesn't diminish it. I can walk into a store and see a very expensive sweater and not like it, The price tag on that sweater is not going to go down because I don't like it. So low self-esteem, looking for your value in the eyes of someone else is incredibly dangerous. Start looking at yourself through the eyes of someone who loves you, through creator's eyes, through your children's eyes. They think you walk on water and they're not wrong. It's because they love you for your flaws, not in spite of them. Once we start standing on our own, then we can actually start believing when other people value us, because we start valuing ourselves.
0: Hi, it's Tony Chapman. This is Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. My special guest is author, activist, storyteller, proud Ojibwe, Sandy Boucher. When we come back, we're going to start exploring some of the tools that she's come up with and how I think they can make for a better life and a better Canada. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million decade long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC.
1: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues.
0: Welcome back to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. My special guest is speaker, author, and activist Sandy Boucher. Sandy, I want to talk about the book, The Path. And you talk about the reason you wrote it is when you started seeing who had their hand on the rudder in terms of creating the Truth and Reconciliation Act, it made you want to scream.
2: And that sums it up beautifully. Canada was starting to have the reconciliation conversation. But what I was seeing from my perspective was a lot of rich, non-Indigenous politicians, most often male, sitting around and talking about what they thought needed to happen for reconciliation, what they thought indigenous people needed. And I'm sorry, that's what got us into this mess in the first place. I honestly felt like I wanted to climb up on the roof and scream out, you are asking the wrong people. You do not get to decide what we need to fix this. I'm sorry you don't. That book is the one I wrote out of anger, out of frustration. I realized that I had met so many well-meaning, heart-in-the-right-place, non-Indigenous people who had no idea how to help. They wanted to help. They were scared stiff of saying the wrong thing and adding to the pain of Indigenous people. But they wanted to do something. But nowhere was there an action plan. I decided to write one. and Anyone who reads it knows there's actually two paths. There's a path for Indigenous people and all the things we have to do to get ready for reconciliation, because there is a lot of work we have to do. And there's a lot of work that non-Indigenous Canadians have to do as well. Once you read the book, you realize why reconciliation hasn't happened yet, because there's a lot of work we still have to do.
0: Reconciliation is such a big part of your your practice now, but I... How do you find that in your heart, knowing that your mom at age 14 was forced to go to school and and had to go to kindergarten and the humiliation of that? Everything we're learning about residential schools, learning the pain, as you say, about the indigenous, you still believe that there's real potential if we each follow the Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal follow these paths to reconciliation. There'll be a time where we can be much better
2: for it. Not only do I believe we can, I believe we have to. The reality is I'm 57 years old. I have to do everything I can in my time here, just like my mom before me, so that my grandkids don't need to be having this conversation. I don't want my granddaughter to have to be a reconciliation expert. I don't want to leave them dealing with the same pain that we are dealing with now. And keep in mind, all of this revelation that Canada is dealing with now, the Indigenous people have known this forever. We knew the children were there. We knew they were buried waiting to be discovered. Part of reconciliation is accepting the truth of the past without excusing it without minimizing it, carrying that burden. So we remember why we have to do the work.
0: I'd love you to take us through these two paths. And as you're listening, I want you to apply these paths, not just to the work that we have to do between Aboriginals and non-Aboriginals. I also want you to apply this thinking to how you reconcile the differences in your life and how we might reconcile the other things that are dividing our society. So Sandy, take us through first the path for non-Aboriginals to follow.
2: First off, I think it's really super important to remember we really need to back away from judgment. Judgment burns bridges. Compassion builds them. So this is not about judgment and condemnation. This is not about good people and bad people. I have met some people that spit out some incredibly racist things, and I'm not going to class that person as a bad person. They are just sharing with me what they've been taught. And if I can teach them something else, then we can start changing this conversation. So the first step for non-Indigenous people is to accept the past, to get to know what Canadian history truly is. And unfortunately, up until incredibly recently, that was not taught in schools, right? You don't know Canadian history, but if you research the Truth and Reconciliation final report, if you're looking at the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls final report, if you look at the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the facts are there. If there's one thing a teaching of my mom comes to mind, she used to say, when you see someone and they're making a decision that you would never make, instead of judging them, you need to ask yourself, how hurt would I have to be? How scared, how overwhelmed, how lost would I have to be for me to make that decision? When you see indigenous people lost to addictions, lost on our streets, There's a reason for that, and it's not because they just chose that life. Often, they're escaping the results of Canadian history. When you get into stage two, it's really unpacking your suitcase, looking at those preconceived notions you've had in your mind with an adult lens now. What were you taught about Indigenous people? And from a logical perspective, does it make sense? Do you honestly think a whole group of people would behave that way without some reason behind it? That chapter helps you to look at what opportunities you had, and what barriers Indigenous people had. And I know for non-Indigenous, white people who might be impoverished, that's a really hard challenge or a hard conversation to have because they're the first to point out, I worked hard for everything I have. But the color of your skin didn't play against you. You had a hospital in your community. You didn't have to get flown out for health care. Your 12-year-old didn't have to go live with strangers just to get a grade nine education, which is still happening for the students in our remote communities today. Those are the opportunities I'm talking about. The things that we take for granted, the fact that you can turn on a kitchen tap and have fresh, clean drinking water. And if you have never been to a remote, trust me, the first time you take a shower and you have to consciously keep your mouth closed because this water is not healthy enough to consume, it changes your perspective. Then in the third stage, you're now looking at empowerment and how to change your conversation. If you think of the stages along the ideas of a life journey, that first stage is the baby stage where you're just learning all this stuff. The second stage is the teenager stage where you might be tempted to want to do something now, but hang on, you still have some education to do. The third stage is the adult stage. Now we're talking about action. It's not just about learning anymore. Now you have to interrupt that racist and say, not in my city. I'm sorry. That's just not acceptable. Once you do all of those stages, you finally get to stage four, the land of the elders, where all the wisdom is now at your beck and call. And that's when we finally have a new engagement style. And we're actually working together as two respected parties.
0: You talk about two paths, the second path being one that Aboriginals have to follow. And I have to believe that everything we're learning and everything you've experienced through your history, trust has to be part of that
2: path. Oh, I'm not sure about trust. (laughs) The first stage for Indigenous people is healing. And I think that is so important for non-Indigenous people to understand. You can't just walk up to any First Nation, Indigenous, Aboriginal person and ask them questions about reconciliation because you don't know if they've had the opportunity to heal. They don't owe you an education. I do this work because I've spent a lot of years healing and educating myself so that I can But please don't assume everyone's had the same opportunities I have. Then they have to go into that unpacking stage and look at the stereotypes we've been taught, because by the way, we have just as many stereotypes about non-Indigenous people as you do about us. So we have to unpack that. Even more importantly, what a lot of people don't realize is if you've been oppressed for a long period of time, you internalize it. You start to believe the stereotypes about yourself and your own people. Then again, once you get into stage three for indigenous people, it's learning to use your voice. You've now done the healing. You've done the educating. Now you're speaking up and saying, no, excuse me. We have to change the wording on that because that's problematic. Brothers, sisters, children that never came home.
1: Ceremonies is the only thing that's going to save me. No blaming. Let's just move together. We're all one.
0: My special guest is Sandy Boucher, a proud Ojibwe woman who knows full well the devastation of colonialism, alcoholism, and domestic violence. She uses stories and humor and metaphors and personal examples to empower men and women of all cultural backgrounds. So, Sandy, what's next for you? I mean, your quest in life to be... I guess, part of the wisdom of elders.
2: Oh, I have so much more work to do. So many more people I can help. So many more conversations to have. My next book is about to come out. and I'm so excited about it. It's called I'm Awake. And it's a collection of the best of my blog posts from the last three years. And I swear it is Honorary India. My first book meets the path. And if you want to know what it's like to be an Indigenous activist in Canada, that's the book. My humor's in there. My activism is in there. My teachings are in there. So I continue my feather dancing, helping empower Indigenous people and help them with their healing. Well, I get to work with and educate some really amazing non-Indigenous people who reach out to ask their questions. And I always welcome questions.
0: Sandy, you've made my task impossible. I always end the podcast with three things I've learned today, and there's probably 30. I love what you talk about your dad esteem. He puts you on a pedestal where you believed you could become prime minister, you could fly. The challenge is when your dad goes away and yours did quite suddenly, you're left alone. So for parents out there, make sure it's the, the esteem that your kids have is their esteem and not yours. Second thing I just love is a lesson from your was passed down through your mom, which is about you're born with everything. You're born with confidence and conviction and creativity and self-esteem. And if people try to take it away, if bullies try to bully it out of you, remember that it's still inside you. Find the way to get it back and to follow your own path. The thing that I really want everybody to take away is these simple principles that are so powerful. First, educate yourself on the situation. Then go into understanding the differences and the deep dives and realize there's two points of view third thing is what can I change about it am I not be able to change the world because I'm just an individual but there's things I can change and then have that conversation those important conversations that realize that there still is incredible life to breathe in the middle ground sandyboucher.com sandy with an I absolute honor to have you on Chatter That Matters
2: thank you so much take care
0: joining me now is Dale Sturgis Dale's heads up, Indigenous Financial Services for RBC. Welcome to Chatter the Matters.
1: Thanks, Tony. Nice to be here.
0: Dale, you've been in this portfolio for quite some time. Give me a sense of the size and scale of the Indigenous economy and where it's heading.
1: Tony, there's certainly, I would say, uh, this misconception in Canada that there is no Indigenous economy. And, uh, you know, that is completely false. There's always been an Indigenous economic system in place here. In fact, the Indigenous economy in Canada contributes about 30 to $32 billion annually to Canada's GDP, and it's developing and growing quickly. There is enormous opportunity for um, Indigenous uh, nations moving toward um, uh, economic uh, self-determination. You know, there, there is talk of the indigenous economy very rapidly growing to a value of a hundred billion dollars or more in the next few years. So very substantial opportunity and growth that indigenous communities and, and nations are taking and really being able to, as Caroline Hilton of the Indigenomics Institute says, taking a seat at the economic table these days.
0: So what role can a bank like RBC play in helping to make that happen?
1: Capital. Access to capital remains a huge barrier. If Indigenous uh, uh, governments and businesses and, and organizations were accessing capital at the rate as everyone else in Canada, there would be an $80 billion injection of capital into the Indigenous economy. So that's the gap that we're dealing with. And there's lots of reasons why that exists. There's a very unfair regulatory and legal framework in place in Canada that prevents Indigenous uh, uh businesses and organizations and governments from accessing capital. So that is, as we all know, critical for any sort of initiative, whether it's an economic development initiative, a business initiative, an infrastructure initiative to get to get those off the ground. There needs to be financial resources to do so. So we know indigenous entrepreneurs start businesses at five times the rate of everyone else. So there's a huge demand for some sort of financial uh, support from from banks. And that's where we really want to focus our our efforts.
0: And the youth that's on the reservation that have a desire to build a business, grow a business, what are some of the things that we can do as a society to help make those dreams a reality?
1: Yeah, it's a a good question, Tony. It's a a complex one. Um, We know, first of all, that there continue to be barriers to education for Indigenous youth, particularly those who live in reserve communities. Uh, We know, for example, that a student that goes to school in a reserve will be funded at about half the rate of what students are funded at to go to school off reserve. So there's a real inequity right there in terms of access to education. Of course, we know that that's critical in terms of helping youth um, think about uh, skills development, training, employment, career development for the future. So one of the things, you know, around creating space that we could do at RBC Creating Safe Space is to try to look at ways in which we can help uh, support access to education. We we have a scholarship program, for example, for, for youth who are going on to post-secondary education.
0: So RBC is spending $50 million a year on Future Launch to help youth find and pursue their path in life. Does any of that money spill over to the Indigenous community?
1: Absolutely. There's a very specific and clear purposeful focus within that program to direct funding toward Indigenous youth initiatives. And it it really has a strong focus around employment, career development, skills development, and actually getting folks into the training and the job opportunities that they're looking for, but yet face enormous barriers in terms of how they can actually get to that point. Future Launch is specifically designed to support youth in in uh, removing some of those barriers that they might face, whether it's education, whether it's geography, you know, there's a number of different things at play there. You know, I talk a lot about how there's corporate values and there's Indigenous societal values, and often they're seen at odds. And the you know my job is to find ways in which they align the concept of wealth you know so from a western or corporate perspective wealth really is around accumulation and growth from an indigenous you know side of things a values based way of thinking wealth is about reciprocity that almost seems at odds with each other but there actually is a way that those two things can come together and so i i hope that i'm able to sort of show rbc you know what it means to have a truly aligned partnership with Indigenous clients and communities and and employees, and at the same time help Indigenous communities really see what RBC is doing to work in partnership in a meaningful way. I've heard many people talk about, as Indigenous people, um, two-eyed seeing, you know, this notion of holding on to traditional values, but also applying those values and that knowledge and those perspectives and experiences as Indigenous people in the modern world. And so there's this ability to see both sides and find a way to integrate those so that we can get to new solutions, new ideas, innovative thinking that, that are inclusive of indigenous perspective.
0: After chatting with Sandy Boucher, I realized how little I know about the indigenous population and how much better I would be if I knew more. And I would argue that how much better we would be as a society if we embrace some of the things that are ingrained in their culture. Things like reciprocal relationships, the value in elders, earning responsibility through participation, and just maintaining their cultural integrity. This is Tony Chapman. You've been listening to Chatter That Matters. Let's chat soon.
1: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.